Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast with worse foot and mouth disease than Paul Scholes. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Giveaway Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And what a roller coaster week it was for the Premier League. We're also going to be looking a little further afield in this episode and talk about the Italian league as well, where Napoli are flying and Jose Mourinho is up to his usual antics. But there's only one place we can realistically start this episode, and that's with Manchester 0, Liverpool 5. Yeah, and Manchester 0, Liverpool 5 is a huge game beyond just this week, beyond just this season. It really made me think when I was watching this, and I had the the grand fortune of watching this with a United fan, a good friend of both of ours, um, and, and I was watching this go on, and at 4-0 down at half-time, where, where by which point my friend's hands were just in his hands for the rest of the game, his head was in his hands for the rest of the game, rather, it, it, it just sort of struck me as there are some results that they go beyond seasons, they go beyond sort of years, they're, they're the sort of games that fans of both teams tell their kids about and sort of some in hushed tones and some with a triumphant swell. Liverpool fans will be talking about when they went to Old Trafford and and battered United 5-0 and for years to come because it's truly a magnificent result and United fans will sort of be talking about this probably in yeah hushed tones ruining the day that they ever gave Oli the chance. It reminded me a lot of that the only comparable result in recent memory to happen in the sort of because it goes beyond even these two clubs it's a real sort of shift type of result and the last yeah, one that absolutely. had this sort of gravitas was when Manchester City went to Old Trafford in 2011 and beat Manchester United 6-1 the season that they that they won the league and it was seen at the time as like a real passing of the torch in an, in a manner of fashions it was seen as sort of Alex Ferguson this great manager finally the cracks were beginning to show he'd been sort of on occasion bested by Arsene Wenger or Jose Mourinho but he was always fighting back and coming back to do it but you you started to see the the de- sort of decline of this sort of great 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 manager and at the same time sort of united they haven't won the league you know a, a real decline for them as well and this is sort of if that was sort of United falling from the top of their perch, the peak of their powers, this is maybe the step beyond that. Because United, as anyone will tell you, haven't won the league in a decade now. And they haven't been improving in the way that a lot of the other teams have. They've had the odd smattering of second place, FA Cups, Europa League trophies, but they've not really looked like a credible threat to the title at any point. Even when they've been finishing second, it's been sort of a long way off the top, not sort of in the same way that we looked at maybe Chelsea last season or Liverpool that season that they finished just shy of Manchester United on on 98 points or whatever it was, where you were sort of going, they didn't get it this time, but you bet good money on them coming for it the next year. Um... And it's sort of the question overarching this. I mean, we can you know go into how amazing Liverpool were after this, but where where to now for United? Is it time for Ole to go? Even if Ole does go, is this just because you know, as Gary Neville is keen to remind us, it isn't an Ole exclusive problem. Standards have been slipping, the football has been bad, and an Old Trafford that was once one of, if not the toughest grounds to go to in the world, has become this sort of ritual site for for embarrassments for for the Stratford faithful. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think um, to to make a very small point, um, you know, the season after that result against Man City, Manchester United did go on to to win the title in 2013, um, and that was without getting rid of their their manager of the time, Sir Alex Ferguson. But um, I think that that is going to be a departure from this time around. History will not repeat itself because um, 
I know the narrative is definitely shifting a- away from Ole staying. Um, but, you know, even on um, Match of the Day 2, Micah Richards was saying, you know, I think we've got to give him a chance to show what he can do. That was the, the direct quote. And, I mean, has he not had enough time to, to, you know, show what he can do? And I was watching back again today, those first few minutes that led up to the first goal in the fifth minute against Liverpool. And they're absolutely bizarre. Granted, it might be because it's rare that, you know, you go back and you look at things like that under a microscope. But I don't remember ever seeing a top team position themselves defensively so badly. Because for that first goal, Salah received the ball on Man United's right-hand side of the pitch. Only had Luke Shaw on the left, uh, the left-back to contend with because Wan-Bissaka was halfway up the wing. Lindelof was also hugging the right-hand touchline. And Harry Maguire had drifted across to the far right-hand side as well. And if you watch it back, you can see this happening all throughout those opening minutes before the goal as well. And on both sides, left and right. It's not just a one wing problem. Um, You know, there are three or four moments where two of the back four are about five metres from the touchline. And there are either gaping holes between them and their um, teammates or they're all just bunched up really weirdly on one side. So this result, we're not talking about mistakes here. We're talking about massive gaping defensive issues which have been present for a while and not dealt with and I think that's important to note because you know this isn't a freak accident this hasn't happened in a vacuum the scoreline was 100% deserved for Manchester United and you know if they had lost this in a different manner I might have agreed with Michael Richards but I don't think there's any evidence to prove that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer knows how to set up a team defensively at all nor does anyone else in United set up know how to do it for him from any sort of coach you can think of to the players themselves. So, yes, absolutely, um, you know, Manchester United need a new manager and they need, you know, literally any sort of defensively robust manager to come in and give them an actual defensive system, teach them how to set up and find some sort of backline leader for them because it, it really is like a rebuild moment. It's it is a rebuild moment, and it's interesting because you know, as you mentioned there, United did, of course, the season after that six one win the league. But the juxtaposition, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came out of this match and he said, sort of like, "Oh, we're so close, we're we're really close to to achieving and to getting to that point." And, and that sort of verbiage, you know, the season that United won that final Premier League, that was, you know, the last time they won it, there was very much a sense of sort of like Ferguson squeezing every last possible goal and performance and everything out of those players before he left. And those players performing for that because they knew Ferguson was on his way out. They wanted to give him a send off. Whereas for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he sort of sees this as a stepping stone. He doesn't see this as a right, let's try and sort of end up. This is sort of still step two or three or four or whatever of his project when realistically it should be the end because the project has failed. And well, I, I mean, think... he, he kind of needs to say that, doesn't he? In order to protect his job, he needs to to kind of build on this narrative of, oh, we are not the finished product yet. We're still building something. Give me time. Yeah, but I think there's there's a few different ways to talk about a loss like that. You can say like, oh, it was a bad day. Oh, the f-. There are a few different things you can sort of, that aren't great excuses, but just the fact that he seems to believe that he's close to getting this team to the way he wants it. And... To everyone else, it seems like it's nowhere near a side that's going to come close to winning the league again, which is, I assume, where he wants to be. If he's talking about, we're close to getting top four again, sure, but then he definitely should be sat because that's not where United fans, or I imagine the United board, want them to be. So so I just didn't really... It, he, he just seems like a man who's at odds with reality. He is, and I think... um, I mean, the narrative around Manchester United is a weird one because everyone's kind of saying that they have a squad to compete with Chelsea or Liverpool and I don't 
personally think that's true. I think they've got a, a, a lot of very good players, but they're almost all in offensive positions. And I think they're, you know, some, some defensive players and a holding midfielder away from really ever challenging. They could challenge for top four if they had a good manager. Sorry, top maybe top three if they had a good manager. But I, I don't think this set of players is good enough to win the league, in my opinion. Um, that being said, I think that they could be playing a lot better than they are playing if they did have a different person at the wheel. And I, I, I yeah, they're so far off the pace. And there's been... I mean, that has been the narrative. It's been very evident that they are this far off the pace just because Liverpool just, they they didn't even play. I mean, they obviously play well, but it wasn't a stunning performance. It was like, bizarrely, Mohamed Salah has found himself in 20 yards of space mm. and then yeah, yeah, 100%. three goals. It's not, um, you know, there, were, there was no incredible goal like the one against City for him. Yeah, and it was, you know, every time Liverpool went forwards, it, it looked like it was going to be a goal. And that was, yes, in part because Mohamed Salah is very lethal and they were looking very good, but also because the defence was getting sliced open so easily. And to, to your point about the team not being good enough to win the league, I, on, on the face of it, I agree with that. But you look at United's team and every single player in that eleven, with the exception of McFred, has at some point in the not too recent past looked really good elsewhere. You think about David De Gea. I mean, David De Gea has been good this season I would suggest um Luke Shaw was fantastic last season Juan Bissaka is not the flashiest defender going forwards but he's a really solid defender and he's played in the Premier League and been solid for a long time Rafael Varane's been a fantastic centre-back for Real Madrid he's, he's got really good pedigree some people suggested before the transfer he'd lost his legs a bit but he can still pull out performance Harry Maguire looks good for Leicester Lindelof looks looks decent at times for, for Manchester United Pogba obviously is a good player Bruno Fernandes is obviously a good player um uh, obviously, Ronaldo is Ronaldo. We've talked about him a lot last episode, but I don't think it changes that he sort of showed his quality, albeit offside, against Liverpool in this game to sort of go inside. Um, I think it was Alexander Arnold and Canate, and, and showed exactly what yeah. his quality is, although it was offside. And, and I think Greenwood's a top player as well. So, with the exception of that defensive midfield role, is it good enough to win the league? Maybe not, but I think it's one of those how good do these players look under a truly competent manager? Because you might have looked at that Chelsea squad this time last season when they were sort of bumbling along under Frank Lampard. And a lot of Chelsea fans who were sort of died-in-the-wall Lampard fans would have told you, well, it's not his fault. They had a transfer ban. They've only been able to use youth players and bring in this player and that player. But under Tuchel, they look like one of the best teams in Europe. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, so I, I don't think they are challenging these big teams now. I think that, you know, maybe they could have had a chance at the league in one of those weird transition years where Leicester won it or where, um, you know, there wasn't as much competition at the top. What I'm talking about now is that they're nowhere near challenging for the title against Chelsea or Liverpool or City currently. Um, so I agree with you that it's kind of a little bit of a blurred line there. Um, but what have Chelsea and done, I, I do just, I, I want to I wanna just say, I feel like Scott McTominay is playing badly and he gets he gets it wrong in terms of, the defensive build-up, and he also switches off at times. But he also has played well in other positions. I mean, he plays quite well at centre-back um, for for Scotland at times, and he has done, I think, for Manchester United in the past. And he also looks good when he's when he's moving forwards. He's he's actually better in the attacking third than other kind of deeper-lying midfielders like Jorginho or Rodri. Um, but yeah, this this role that he's been given a man you is is not for him. Um, or it could be for him with better teaching. 
But I, I, th- I think Matomene is one of those, though. I think I think he is truly average. But again, and it's interesting that you brought out a player there that was one I was actually about to invoke, Jorginho. There were times pre-Tuchel, and even I think at the very start of Tuchel at Chelsea, where I was sort of going, "And this Jorginho is supposed to be good, is he? Like, how, how is he?" And and then he's gone for Chelsea, been one of their best players last season and this season, and also was amazing for Italy in the Euros. And it's kind of like, oh. This guy is kind of good. He was just being used poorly. And and, and there are a few players like that at Chelsea. Remember, like everyone thought Kovacic was just ass for ages. And now he's, again, yeah. been a really important player in that midfield. So m- maybe uh, everything in my in my fibre is screaming that he's an absolutely mid-tier player that would be lucky to be playing for, for example, Everton. Says that Scott McTominay is, is just bang average. But may- maybe there is a manager that could get something out of him. Well, this is the thing. I mean, so... We have uh, at times taken it in turns to rag on Harry Maguire, but he's not inherently a bad player. He's just a he's not a leader um, in defence. He's not someone who can marshal a back line and he's being asked to do that job and he's really bad at it. But if he had the right support around him, if he had a more vocal goalkeeper and a better partner, really a more vocal goalkeeper is, I think, in my opinion, at least the absolute key to getting more out of Harry Maguire because it's what he had at Leicester um I think that he could be really good but he's just not being managed well and so many of these players aren't being managed well and, and I agree that they could have a Chelsea-esque glow up I'm not sure that it would be quite as good because Chelsea had a more complete squad when a better manager took over but you know there's a there's a big difference between losing 6-0 5-0 to Liverpool and winning the Champions League. I think Man U won't win the Champions League if they get a new manager, but they could not lose to Liverpool 5-0. I mean, you say that Chelsea had a significantly better squad, and when you no, look at I didn't, the... No, not significantly the, better, significantly more well-rounded. Or more well-rounded. Well, well, well-rounded maybe is fair, but like when you look at Chelsea at the moment, like who are the stars at Chelsea? It's not really, aside from Ben Chilwell, but even Ben Chilwell's been in and out, it's not really any of the big purchases. It's Mason Mount, it's Jorginho, sort of conversations, Reese James who came to the academy. Like Ben Chilwell, is Ben Chilwell on his best day significantly better than Luke Shaw on his best day? Maybe, but that was a debate that was being had no, he's not. very fairly, you know, about the Euros squad. Similarly, Reese James, like Reese James has come through the academy, or like Callum Hudson Odoi is another one. Is anyone going to tell me that Callum Hudson Odoi is a better footballer than Mason Greenwood? No, I don't think anyone would try, apart from a very slightly deluded uh, Chelsea fan. Um, <laughs> right, but, 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 but these players are all having miles better seasons. It's midfield where it's players like N'Golo Kante that Manchester United just have nowhere, no one absolutely anywhere near him. Or Kovacic, or Jorginho. Um, True, they just don't but, have but, that level quality of player. But then even, I mean, Kante's been out recently, has he not? I mean, Chelsea didn't play him against Norwich. It was um, Yeah, but they've Kovacic, got Kovacic and Jorginho. Kovacic, Jorginho, and Ruben Loftus-Cheek who's been coming in as well, who, again, another player that was decidedly mid-tier and now looks really good under this new manager. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, yeah, he's always kind of threatened to be a very good player and never quite managed it. So I'd say he's slightly different because he's more of a, a false dawn, will he, won't he, rather than you've always been consistently bang average. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't want to get too bogged down by this this comparative argument, but I do feel like Chelsea had a bit more about them when, when Tuchel took over, which is not to say that Manchester United couldn't be a much better side if managed by someone who knew how to set up a defence. So are we in agreement? Are we both on the, uh, not on the bizarre island that Gary Neville finds him on at the moment where he's having these weird spats, these weird takes on Twitter. Like, he somehow managed to connect earlier today, I was reading on Twitter, like, United fans hounding Ole out of the club with Boris Johnson. 
he, he was he was like, oh, United fans like attacking the the player that won them the Champions League. Anything happens in, in Johnson's England, and I was like, are, are those two things connectors? Yeah, it's it's weird because I mean G- Gary Neville is a very good football pundit, and he's also quite a good political pundit. Um, but he's he's a, tried to marry the two, and it has not like worked at all. I mean, I, he's just obviously got a massive blind spot when it comes to Manchester United. So. I mean, clearly Paul Scholes doesn't, so maybe he'd be a better person to to look to for Manchester United specific um, criticisms and discussions. But but not perhaps um, on child rearing tips. No, no, not not so much that. That was a a very strange video that came out. A, a very strange video indeed. I mean, it, it's weird, isn't it, when you sort of like one of your club legends is sucking on his daughter's toes, and that's not the worst thing to happen to your club that weekend. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, you're always going to have pundits on on different sides of an argument, just kind of because they're at least in part paid to have different arguments than the general narrative at times. Um, but you know, I I just think that yeah, any sane person would look at this. Any sane person without a blind spot would look at this and say he has to leave. Surely he absolutely has to leave. Sorry, Ole, you seem like a nice guy but you're not ready to manage Manchester United. So so if you're if you're, you know, the United board, are you saying right now he's gone and you start the search now? Are you giving him any sort of second chance or do you think he's he's burned through his second, his third, his fourth chance? I mean, how long has he been manager for? 3 years, 2 years? 3 3 years now, yeah. Yeah, 3 years. That's enough time. That he they've had enough signings. I mean, and obviously you can't just see the signings that a club makes as being solely down to what the manager wants, but He's had enough time and I, I really just think that nothing, as I said earlier, like nothing shows me or proves to me that he has any sort of like the level of acumen needed to run a top tier side. He just, he has never proven that and he's had a long time to do it. Well then, um, before we move on to, to Liverpool then, I mean, if Ole has to go, who indeed replaces him? And we were having a similar conversation not too long ago about Steve Bruce, because of course Newcastle now have the clout to hire a, a top-level manager. They might be in direct competition with uh, with Manchester United. It's a real sort of, if you're a manager in the you know in vogue at the moment, you might be able to choose between Manchester United and Newcastle United, which genuinely, unironically, might be a difficult choice to make at present, because a lot of the names being bandied about, there was quite a good tweet by like Grace Robertson on Twitter there. She was like, everyone's talking about Zinedine Zidane. Imagine how insane Zinedine Zidane would have to be to like be in his nice mansion in the French hit like Riviera or whatever it is and be like, you know what? I'm kind of sick of this. I want to get up at 5am and coach this Manchester United team. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be... I don't know if this is a poison chalice or not, but it would be a strange decision to make for him as an individual. That's definitely for sure. Um, I... Tell us off who... the rip also. Like, if, if you're... If you're coming in to replace Ole, because there are, not to the same degree maybe as Lampard, but there are a lot of United fans who are still, like, give him time. Well, I say a lot. There's, there are a few, certainly, who are still, still sort of championing his case. I feel like if you're a manager that's coming in to replace a vacancy that's been quite unfavourably made, you need instant success. And there were, like, there were Chelsea fans, some quite, like, vocal Chelsea fans, who were sort of in the first few weeks of Tuchel's... Um, you remember when he, like, started off with all those draws? And people were, like, yeah, yeah. Or, like sort of unconvinced. And I saw Chelsea fans online being, like, why have we sacked the most legendary player our club's ever had to get this, like, no hope in? And Tuchel 
obviously then won the Champions League, which is a pretty good way to buy favour amongst the fan base. But any manager at Man United get in to replace Ole isn't necessarily going to be able to do that straight away. So in a sense, it might be difficult because you're going to be coming into a lot of United fans who go, well, a lot of older United fans, especially who are going to be going like, well, why do we get this guy to replay? We should have let Ole build a project, blah, blah, blah. I mean, even Gary Neville has already sort of been like, the re- his reasoning that Ole shouldn't go is basically that it didn't work under Van Gaal, it didn't work under Mourinho, so what's to say that another big-name manager will come in and do better? We should give my mate another chance. Well, I mean, okay, so a couple of things to break down there. Firstly, Lampard was given, what, a season and a half, and Ole's been given double that time. Um, also, Frank Lampard was undisputedly one of the greatest players Chelsea had ever had, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was a very good striker for them, but he was by no means at the level of, of their, you know, best players like Ryan Giggs and Paul Scholes and, um, you know, Nemanja Vidic and Rio Ferdinand and Patrice Evra. Like, you could name... You could name very easily and very quickly 10 players better than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with a more lasting legacy than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United and it would not be hard um, so I think for those two reasons alone I think it'll be a lot easier and a lot more palatable for you know United fans even the the slim majority that, that want him to stay um, and yeah I don't know I feel like it's going to go over more easily. And also Lampard had a um, a transfer ban for most of his time at Chelsea. So there are reasons for, for Chelsea fans to want to linger with him longer than I think um, Manchester United fans will linger with Solskjaer. That's definitely true. I mean, I, I do also think it's funny, like a lot is being made of like the fact that he scored that winner in the 98-99, which is again, like huge moment. But like, do you think... You know, Rupert, when we're when we're old and grey and Chelsea of the future have hired Kai Havertz as their manager, he'll be getting any quarter because he scored a goal once. I mean, I guess it all depends on what he does from, from now on, but probably not. I mean, if, if it's just that. <laughs> if it's just that. I mean, to be fair, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did more than just that. He was like, his nickname was Mr. Reliable. He was a I know, great... but that was, that was his greatest moment in the United shirt. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, yeah, no, you're, you're right. You're right. Um, in terms of who's coming in, uh, Zidane, I I think they might try and get him, but I don't think he's the right decision. I actually, and I don't know if this is good or controversial or generally accepted as quite a good idea, but I think Antonio Conte could do a job. I mean, he's he's available and he's just quite quite good at defensive systems. Well, he's he's the front runner, and there's a lot to like about that appointment. If you're a United fan, obviously he has won the Premier League in the past. He did it very well, sort of bringing a new revolutionary at the time. Back three in English football? You must be crazy. Um, and did really, really well there. Um, so yeah, let, let, let's talk over a little bit about Conte at United, what that could look like. Well, I think um, the, the obvious thing is, does United's squad suit a three-at-the-back system? Because Conte is quite good at getting the best out of specific individual players and building systems around them, but he does at times often revert back to what he knows, which is three at the back systems. And I think I think they've they've almost got enough there to, to do quite well in in that format. I think the problem is, you know, they're a very top heavy side and three at the back is at times at least quite a defensive minded system. Um, but I think that if he can come in and instill some of his, you know, solidity at the back, then 
I, I think it could work really well. And I think they, they more or less have, with maybe an, a January signing or a couple of signings next year, um, they have a pretty good squad for him. Yeah, I, I think as well, like, if he comes in to, with the idea to play like a three-five-two or a three-four-one-two or a whatever, some sort of system like that, he's going to come in with a few ideas of the players to make that work. So whether that is someone like a Frank Kessier or or any sort of defensive midfielder that, or, you know, Aurelien Chumain, who, who anyone who's sort of floating around Europe that I, I don't think he's going to look at that squad and go just immediately switch them to three five two and call it a day. Um, so yeah, I do think he's interesting. And, and in terms of the players that would fit, I mean, Luke Shaw obviously fits very well in the back three because we've seen it uh, for England, sort of playing that wing back role. Similarly, Harry Maguire has looked good at times in that role. And it does afford a lot, a little bit of cover for a third centre back to be able to cover you when you're not looking or not yeah, getting goal sure. side of someone. For sure. Um, I mean, you know, I think you would, I don't think you'd want to play Harry Maguire as the, the middle of the centre backs. I think you'd want to put him on the left. And you'd want to get someone else in, either Rafa Varane or a new centre-back. Um, sort of like, yeah, the, the, the fail-safe. And, and yeah, and, yeah w- w- Wan-Bissaka as well could play the sort of, uh, the way that a back three often works is sort of you have one wing-back bombing forwards and then in act- attacking phase it sort of shifts almost to a back four with that sort of right-back tucking in and the left-most centre-back going to the left, which you could see working quite well with those full-backs because Luke Shaw's very attacking and got loads of prowess there, whereas... Aaron Wambasaka is not as great going forwards, can't really cross the ball, but quite good at putting in a tackle. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I... Sorry, could you repeat that? I actually wasn't listening. I was thinking about football. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, the, the other thing that would work with that is, you know, Luke Shaw is a really good attacking left back. And what a lot of these teams in the back three are doing nowadays is in attacking phases, one full back will sort of bomb up and the defensive line will sort of shift to become a back four with the sort of leftmost centre back basically becoming the left back while Luke Shaw goes and plays at being a winger. And that works because Luke Shaw very good at attacking. Aaron Wambasaka less good at going forwards, can't really put in a cross, but really good at putting a tackle in. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually think wambasaka is quite underrated when it comes to going forward not because he's very good but i think because everyone thinks of him as being really bad and he actually is quite handy at times um and i also think that he will get caught out less defensively in a back five because he's very good at one-on-one defending but he's not very good at spatial awareness and i think to take a little bit of, of the kind of formation burden off him would only allow him to do play better um so i mean i've I've kind of been thinking about who because i feel like conte always likes to take some sort of like quite attacking winger like hudson adoy and turn him into a wing back and i've been trying to think of who who he would want to do that with at manchester united i mean i mean it'd be hilarious to watch Cristiano ronaldo play right wing back um (laughs) But I don't know who it would be. Would it be Martial? Would it be... God, God I want that to happen now. I want Conte to go to United, if only to see like Ronaldo try and get into the box. And Conte's like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing there? Cristiano, hug the touchline. Hug it. Make love to it. Um, yeah, I, I I think... And I mean, even... I, I, I would quite like to see Manchester United set up in a 4-3-3, which would maybe suit Zidane coming in. Um, because I think that they've got... They've got the midfield to make that work, almost, almost. Um, I think you'd need to bring in Matic from the cold um, to do so, which which maybe wouldn't be the most popular decision, but he just is their best defensive midfielder at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it, it could definitely work out. And, 
you know, the thing that you would have to figure out in a back three is that oftentimes with a back three, you have the wingbacks creating a lot of the play, and it means that you often play without a traditional creative midfielder, which for United is kind of a no-go because you've got to have space for Bruno Fernandes. So maybe it'd be a 3-4-1-2 with him sort of playing behind Ronaldo and and uh, Greenwood, which could be a very interesting one. But then you've got to sort of find that balance between width and it, it's a whole sort of trying to figure that out. But it yeah, could be true. definitely very interesting. But I mean, I do think that a 3-4-2-1 even with kind of inverted close wingers would work quite well with Manchester United's players because Fernandes could play there and kind of slide in when he wants. Um, you could also have Martial there. You could have Rashford there. You could have Jadon Sancho there. You could have, um, I think, quite a few different players play that position. Yeah, I think they could definitely work. Um, I'm going to wrap up with the second manager choice, or the second manager one that's being banded around because we are, are at peril of turning this into a United-only episode. Um, and that's Eric Ten Hag, who I think would actually maybe be even more of a fit than... Um, Antonio Conte, I think uh, Ten Hag is a man whose star is rising at the moment. His outside are doing extremely well. They've just beaten Borussia, Dor- um, Borussia Dortmund four nil in the uh, in the Champions League, I believe, um, and then beaten Feyenoord at the weekend five nil. They're doing really well, smashing things to pieces. And he is, as all Ajax managers before him are, but I think it's more of a case of them hiring managers who know it well rather than it just being something that happens. Good at developing youth. I think if you're United right now, and United fans, the, those who dissented against the Ronaldo signing dissented against it thusly, the strength of United right now is building on their youth and where their youth works well. And I think you just go all in on their younger players, especially um, Mason Greenwood, but also players like Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, and develop them to the best of their abilities so that you have a team that can only continue to get better rather than over-relying on players that are sort of you know, maybe they have one good season, but then they're out like your Ronaldo's and your Cavani's. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's a, I think it would be a really exciting appointment. I agree with you. You know, the focus on youth would be exciting and fresh and vibrant, which is kind of what United need right now. Um, You know, his Ajax set up in a 4-3-3, which is, you know, what I said I thought would actually quite suit their system. He plays quite a fun, um, you know, attractive style of football and there's a lot of attacking fluidity which man you could could do well with um you know his his sides press well and that's important too um so you know there, there is definitely defensive things that he could teach this side um and i'm sure uh donny van der beek is um on his hands and knees praying for this appointment yeah, that would be another one who'd definitely benefit. On, on to Liverpool now, and there's not a huge amount to say here, not least because Liverpool did basically this last week, um, and it's a real testament to their quality that they are able to basically produce identical performances against Watford and Manchester United. Um, all are cowering before them at the moment. Or, or is it just over. that they're about the same at the moment? Watford and United, well, I mean, yeah, take take from those uh, those two results what you will, whether it means that Liverpool are so good that all fall beneath them. But I did think this game could have been more than 5-0. It was just a case of Liverpool sort of going, you know, some were sort of cynically making the joke that like, they were like, well, the league is easier for Klopp as long as Ole manages here. So if he makes it 10-0, he's definitely sad. But if he keeps it to 5, he might not. Yeah, true. Um, my favourite thing that I saw was um, the idea that Manchester United, Manchester City pretended to go for Ronaldo so that Man U would be forced to go for him and thus uh, create the beginning of the end because uh, he would completely ruin the dressing room. I don't even think that's a conspiracy theory. I think that's just true. <laughs> I mean, if so, that's some absolutely outstanding 4D chess from Man City. Um, but, uh, yeah, I Liverpool... don't even think it is. I think it's hilarious, but I think that's like 
that's like 2D chess. That's like you go for United's like most legendary active player. Of course, they're going to go in for him and try and sort of like let every United fan and every United executive and every United like they were never ever ever going to let another Premier League club, least of all the other Manchester club, go for Ronaldo lying down. I. I I, I would not be surprised to learn that that was their exact plan. I, I'd go, huh. I wouldn't go, what? I mean, I think I'd still be pretty surprised just because it would be such a such a high-value play. But I mean, I think, I think the fact that Ronaldo, I'm confident, would already have 10 goals if he was playing for Man City means that I think they did genuinely go for him. And maybe they jokingly were like, well, you know, even if Manchester United do swoop in, he, he might not be... The right fit for them, that would be funny, wouldn't it? But I don't think they, they went into it actively trying to get Ronaldo to United so that he would, you know, I don't know, sit on one side of the boat and watch it capsize. Um, I'm telling you, man, when we get the standalone Amazon Prime documentary Chicky, which is just like a a, a view-all of Chicky McGarrestain's um, <laughs> c- career at Manchester City and he goes into that, I, I alone will not be gossiping on my television. Well, on that day, Cam, I will buy you a pint. Agreed. Except, um, but except yeah, no, Liverpool. Let's let's get back to Liverpool. Um, they, I mean, they're just quite good, aren't they? They they the most impressive thing is what everyone seems to be picking up on is just the fact that they can swap out players from their system now and not suffer too much for it, and that is a big departure from last year when we saw you know a few key players become injured and their whole t- like the whole side completely collapsed so uh, it looks like you know in terms of this being a turning point for Manchester United a turning point for Liverpool as well just because we can see their growth continuing um over the last year or so to become a more comprehensive squad and that should frighten any and all opponents um looking at this result and yeah, I think that they will challenge Chelsea for the title this season. I think it's going to go down to those two. Well, I mean, you make a good point there because it does, when they show how they can use their squad even without their you know, sort of necessarily best players. Last season, that was such a big criticism of theirs, losing those players. But you look at the midfield they started in this game and it was Milner, Henderson and Keita, which is on paper fine but they put in a masterful display and and that just really just like sort of exhibits the ability and the confidence that they have in the squad and 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 how Klopp feels and how he motivates the player Henderson put in the kind of pass that if De Bruyne was doing it everyone would still be talking about it next week um for for Mo Salah's I think it was Mo Salah's third but uh, it was easy to get mixed up at a certain point in the game because it was just every attack was a, a some sort of Mo Salah involvement goal yeah, to be sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the other thing to say is just that this is by no means the, the hardest game that they will have to play. Um, and they were made, at least in part, to look very good by a very bad opposition. But yeah, it's um, it's an exciting time to be a Liverpool fan because, you know, if, if you take that on face value and you go, OK, we now have a better squad and that squad is able to rotate well. Add that to what is, I don't think anyone can really argue, the best starting eleven in the in the league. And, you know, that there aren't really a lot of holes in, in that system. It's looking like I can't remember where I put them, either third or fourth. It's looking like that uh that prediction might come to rear its like he hadn't bitten in the arse unless, you know, unless Mohammed Salah is like taken out by a landmine in the AFCON or something. 
Well, I mean, they'll still have the AFCON to, to navigate. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you had them fourth and I had them second. I think, I think that's about right, but, you know, it looks like you're, you're going to be a lot closer than I was. Um, that probably is a good time to go to useless trivia before we go to our other games, because we have spent a good amount of time on this game, which is fair, because it was quite a game and quite a spectacle indeed. But uh, useless trivia now, um, and I have got something for you. Uh, we had United Liverpool was one big clash of two enormous teams, two classic rivals, um, but that happened... Uh, around Europe this weekend. It happened between Marseille and PSG. It happened between Inter Milan and Juventus. And it also happened between Barcelona and Real Madrid in the much-famed El Clasico. Um, And El Clasico, great, great, great match every time between these two absolute juggernauts of the sport um, and these two European juggernauts in the sport. But Rupert, what if I asked you who you thought the... And you don't have to answer this because I'll I'll reveal shortly after this, but... Do you have any idea off the top of your head as to who the last European player to score a hat-trick in El Clasico was? The last European player to score a hat-trick in El Clasico? Raul? Mm. That's a good guess. It's a pretty solid guess. Of course, there are all sorts of top European goal scorers that have played for both Barca and Real Madrid. Not least Cristiano Ronaldo, Karim Benzema, Raul, as you mentioned. Louis Figo's another pretty solid guess. What if I told you the last European player to score a hat-trick in El Clasico was none other than... Gary Lineker. Oh my word. <laughs> that's, that's 1980s. That's a long time ago. That's a very long time ago, which is insane when you think about it, because there's been such a sort of slew of European talent going through both of those clubs, and Juggs was the last one to do it in like 1988. I mean, I, I guess it's important to say as well, like, hat-tricks in rival matches in derbies are super, super rare. Um, barring no, not, one not, side not com- Messi. completely collapsing, unless you are Lionel Messi. Um, but yeah, that that is very surprising. It's just crazy though to think because, like, they, you know, hat tricks in derby games are pretty rare, but especially in La Liga, where oftentimes Real and Barcelona will play each other home and away, then they'll also play each other in the Copa del Rey. Yeah, it, it's they'll also like play five, each other in the Supercopa. Then they'll season. also play. The, yeah, exactly. They'll also play each other probably in the Champions League semi-final. They often do meet a lot of times, which is how Lionel Messi's managed to rack up like a, a couple of them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's crazy that someone like Karim Benzema, who's probably played at this time in his career like fifty El Clasicos, <laughs> hasn't managed to score a hat trick earlier, or a Raúl, or a you know any of the top European players that have that have gone through there. Yeah. Wait. So has Ronaldo not scored a hat trick in an El Clasico? He has not. Well, well, well. It's kind of crazy, right? Um, Maybe a a small dent in the armour of anyone who is pro-Cristiano over Lionel. Um, But uh, yeah, that is a very surprising stat. Mm. What have you got for me this week? Useless trivia this week. I've got a tale, Cam. I've got a story of woe. Um, So uh, this is back from August, so I'm catching up on the news. But... um, in a amateur Scottish Cup tie between uh, Fergaili Star and Vale of Leven AFC, um, quite a bizarre situation occurred, which was when uh, Fergaili Star were up two one, and their striker, um, whose name was um, Ross Hamilton, uh, went through on goal, put it in towards the net. And it got saved on the line by a golden retriever who had, who had managed to get off its leash. Um, the team then went on to lose the game 3-2. The player has since said that he is going to retire. And um, the dog, who is yet to be found, was given the Man of the Match award. 
Um, turns out the uh, the opposition side who went on to win Vale of Leaven are sponsored by a pub called the Doghouse, and the dog's picture is going to go up in in that pub. And uh, it was also International Dog Day when it happened. We love to see it. We absolutely love when things like that. I'm pretty sure that's also <laughs> like a plot point in Ted Lasso. I mean, it's literally just like bizarre. It's ultimate grassroots football story, isn't it? Um, but uh, yeah, so Vale of Levin AFC were uh, and still are, I believe, in the market for a new goalkeeper. And uh, the the jokes have been made and the offers have also uh, come flying in for, for the Golden Retriever. That's fantastic. I, I love that like the dog hasn't been identified either because it's like if it was a match going fans dog or something, that'd be like kind of funny. But the fact that it's just like a dog that appeared out of nowhere... Some might say it would be better if, like, the team's mascot was a dog or something. It was, like, on the badge. <laughs> yeah, I know. Down, out of... <laughs> I know. Well, uh, he's been uh, playfully dubbed Stray Given by uh, some news outlets, which I'm a big fan of, personally. That's fantastic. Um, no, DDG? More like D-O-G. <laughs> I'm uh, here all week. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> that's great um, looking at West Ham 1 Spurs 0 a much less exciting game uh, than United 5 uh, sorry United 0 Liverpool 5 that would have been nice for United have been United 5 Liverpool 0 um, but West Ham and Spurs two teams going in different directions West Ham going from strength to strength this was not the most amazing game ever but just an interesting game for you know Nuno came out afterwards and was like we were the better team despite registering no shots in the second half but West Ham was sort of steadfast they often do get one over Spurs it's sort of a bit of a classic sort of derby derby game with a bit of a yeah they, a they do like to grab a result don't they they, they do like to, even when West Ham are sort of like having, obviously they're having one of their good years this time, as, as you know, West Ham rarely have middle years. They either sort of seem like they're pushing for top six or pushing for relegation. You ever, you ever noticed that? Um, but um, yeah, they're having one of their good years this year. But even when they're having their bad years, they normally give uh, Spurs a run for their money at least once. Um, and um, you've got to ask what the peak is for this West Ham team. I mean, Antonio seems to be relatively injury-free so far this season. They're resting him well. They didn't play him at all in midweek. He wasn't even on the bench in anticipation of this game. And he then went on to score the only goal and give us a hilarious Matrix celebration. So I think David Moyes is very wise to the fact that in Antonio you have a player who is fantastic, but very, very brittle and sort of managing that in a fantastic way. Um, of course, until he isn't. But he's, he's sort of doing all he can to make sure that Antonio is fit for these games and reaping the rewards. Yeah, I mean, David Moyes, as a as a man manager, is really, you know, coming into his own because the the just the, the atmosphere and vibe around Mikel Antonio as a player seems very similar to what we saw with Jesse Lingard because they just seem to be playing in such a carefree and dynamic and motivated way um and yeah it's a joy to watch i mean i will say say this much i mean yeah harry kane has given harry maguire a run for his money when it comes to worst defending from a corner um i mean he was literally just standing next to antonio watching as he put it in the back of the net to win the game but um you don't see a lot of corners like that do you where it goes into the bot i think it was always like in the keeper's area and antonio didn't header it he like side footed it in (laughs) you don't see a lot of corners go to feet it's it's rare it's rare it's surprising i mean spurs just did not play well at all and west ham didn't play amazingly they they were on top of the game for for large parts of it but couldn't quite get um any sort of like firm purchase on it and i and i think ultimately they just wanted it a bit more um you know this game i think was a real uh it was a real um 
Brendan Rogers um, character game, and um, they they literally just fought a little bit harder for the fifty fifties and got the result. Um, and they were going for it as well. Pablo Fornals had about like three different attempts at scoring a screamer, and none of them came off this time. But I was like, "Go on, son." <laughs> Mostly because it was a really dull game otherwise, and every now and again Fornals would give it a go, and I'd be like half asleep on my sofa, and I'd be like, "Oh, that's put me back into the game." Yeah, and he just kind of either be arriving or he'd like win the ball back, having given it away, and then just sky it. But I mean, he was doing his best, and he actually, despite being a bit misfiring up front, he kind of encapsulated that West Ham spirit in terms of. You know, always trying to to get a winner and always trying to um, push through. I mean, um, Spurs, uh, so strange. How weird is it that a team whose striker doesn't regularly get into the box or onto the end of chances, how weird is it that they don't score goals? I mean, this is the thing. They were saying, I think it was, again, um, Michael Richards saying after the game, they were like doing the little thing they do with the iPad and the, the diagrams and, you know, the virtual sort of when they put players elsewhere and they kept being like, Harry Kane shouldn't be here on the wing. He should be here in the box. And I, and I, I, I like Michael Richards, but I was like, this is so barely analysis. This is just like, someone just needs to sit Harry Kane down and go, mate, last season was great. You somehow managed to do it, both being a striker and attacking midfielder. And I don't want to go into this, this rant again on the podcast because Lord knows I've had it two or three times, but just please, just be a striker, mate. Just focus on that for crying out loud. You would, you would think that it would be that easy, yeah. It's it's just bizarre. I mean, to the point now with Harry Kane, you, I think the question has to be asked. Well, a couple, but firstly, did Spurs make a mistake not selling him in the summer? And secondly, yes. With with that in mind, and we can dig into that beyond the because I I would agree yes, but uh, there's not to be unpacked there beyond that very enthusiastic yes. Uh, as much as I love an enthusiastic yes, but if yes. the answer to that is is yes, is it then time to try and cash in on Harry Kane this January? Well, it's tricky because I think um, the the aura surrounding him is faded. So where once you were looking at maybe 150 million, I think you're now looking at 100 max. Um, so if, if that, because January now, you know, we're six months closer, you know, to the end of his contract. We're also six months closer to the summer window where Erling Haaland's going to be free for 75 million. Kylian Mbappe is going to be available. All these players, you know, this summer. You're sort of, if you're Man City or Manchester United, maybe, you're looking at it and you're going, right, time to start off the season with a bang. Most teams are kind of settled into how they want to play. Even if you're United, they're not going to get Kane to, you know, partner Ronaldo up to. I mean, actually, that would be such a classic United thing to do. I don't know what I'm talking about. Defensive midfielder, no. That would be pretty weaponous. I mean, I think. But, um, um, but, yeah. but yeah, like, now, now he's a much less attractive prospect. Not Even if he'd been playing like he did last season, he'd be a less attractive prospect now than he was in the summer. I mean, you were saying earlier that, um, you know, Manchester United, uh, I remember you saying at the beginning of the season before the transfer window had closed, Manchester United plus Harry Kane would be a force we reckoned with. And is that because you recognised that Manchester United were without a, a holding midfielder? Kind That's of, where uh, Harry Kane a, likes to play, a player, exactly. A deep line playmaker type, type player. Um, exactly right. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's a strange one because both him and Ronaldo are absolutely <laughs> world-class strikers. And they're just not. <laughs> I'm just laughing what? at the mental image of Harry Kane. I know he went him like putting on his number nine shirt, but like putting it on upside down and being like, "I'm a defensive mid. I play number six. Have stranger things happened? Not I just, maybe. I just don't, I I'm not confident in saying that that's not what's happened with him. 
<laughs> you think he just like instead of looking in the mirror, he's like looking in, in some sort of like mirrored ceiling, and he's going like six. Is that it? Yeah, like, I, like, like, is, like that, I, is that I, where I, I play? I, I know it was the number ten, but I'm just thinking like, has he seen like you know the, the the number nine and number six like written on a tactics thing and got them confused? And he's like, well, I play striker, which people say is number nine, but the number nine here on the board isn't the one, the one I see in my books, and he's just getting confused. <laughs> could well be it could well be but yeah i mean i think um it's a strange situation to have such incredible strikers not playing to the best of their abilities but you know that they would be able to score so many more goals and play so much better in different systems in the premier league so both ronaldo and kane i think are just one you know club switch away from being unbelievably good yeah, well, I mean, probably, but you do sometimes see this. You do sometimes see probably. players sort of just like like Harry Kane, for whatever reason, he might be playing badly because he's just not having a great year. He might just be, you know, there might be something going on personally with him. Like the fact that he's, you know, his family might be a bit frosty after he physically beat up his own brother or something after failing to get in the move. I don't know. That's just speculation. But, um, but uh, yeah, there, there's something that sort of just looks like he's not playing quite right. And sometimes when you get into that funk, it's kind of hard to shake. I know the whole thing is sort of like, you know, form is, is temporary, class is permanent. But sometimes you do see it with players. Often after a failed move, they sort of get into this funk and they're never quite the same player again, which... From an England fan perspective, I really hope is not the case, um, but it, it it could be. Well, I guess it's it's interesting because it could go one of two ways, as you say. I mean, I, I do kind of feel like if any if if Nuno is any sort of rational thinker, he will have already tried to be like, look, Harry, don't play in midfield. You're our striker. You're really quite good at it. Please stay at the top of the pitch. And I can imagine him turning around and going. Sure, but when I do that, I don't get any balls because we don't have enough creativity in midfield. So I could have, I could believe that if you went to a side that had more creativity in midfield, you know that that instinct to drop back would slowly fade. And I mean, I don't think he's lost his ability to finish. No, I don't think he has either. But yeah, I, I can completely get the thought process of him being like, "Oh, I'm not getting any of the." It, it just. Spurs are in just sometimes weird position where it just feels like they're in Groundhog Day sometimes. Like so much of what ha- is happening this season just reminds me of like it kind of feels like I've bought like you know Pro Evolution Soccer or or E Football as it's otherwise known, and they haven't quite got the rights to like the 2013 Spurs side. So instead of playing with like Musa Sissoko, I'm playing with some guy called Tangi and Dombele. And instead of playing with Eric Lamella, I'm playing with some guy called Brian Hill. And instead of uh, you know a, a, a disgruntled it's like sort London of, uh, White. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Raphael Vandermaal play with like Dele. It, it it just seems like so many of these are just like players that were there for. Or like uh, the other one is like Emerson Royale. It's just like a regen of uh, of Serge Aurier. Serge Aurier, just, yeah, absolutely. So many players. Um, I'm just like, how have you found yourself in exactly the same position? Well, I mean, I I just kind of feel like, you know, you know, there are things that you always kind of end up mentally self like referring back to, and with Spurs, I just feel like. You know that moment where Zidane said when they got rid of Makalele, they they had this car and they'd they'd gotten rid of the engine, and mm. I just feel like Christian Eriksen was a lot more important to them than they gave him credit for in terms of creativity and making that side tick, and they just haven't replaced him. Yeah, and and Harry Kane sort of filled in both those roles, but 
now we're sort of seeing what that's done. It's sort of given him this idea that he's somehow more than a striker, the pursuit of which has ended up with him becoming less than a striker. This is very true. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, West Ham, in terms of their ceiling, I think that they could well... I think they they get to Europe this season. Um, I think they they could well do that, um, realistically. I don't think they're going to challenge for the top four, but, you know... If they can keep this crop of players and keep building on it, then it's it's a very exciting you know next couple of years, very exciting future. Um, I mean, so much credit to David Moyes because everyone wrote him off after this this his woeful Manchester United career and then subsequent La Liga forays. But I mean, he's just proving again why he was chosen to to take over from Ferguson because he was good at Everton and he's great at West Ham. If you're a betting man, you would put money on West Ham to finish above Spurs rather than the other way around at this moment in time. I, I think you definitely would, yeah. You'd probably you'd probably put West Ham you'd probably bet on West Ham to finish second of any London team. Uh probably. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah, you yeah, you probably would. Uh after after Chelsea, yeah. I think at the moment, yeah. Arsenal could turn it around and sort of have shown bright spots, but you wouldn't at the moment put, you know, shackle your, your cart to that horse and the same as Spurs and Brentford look good, but it's still very early doors. So yeah, West Ham, second best London team in the league, apparently. There you go. Now we know. Um, and let's uh, let's go across London and talk about Chelsea now, who absolutely trounced Norwich 7-0. Yeah, and I, I have a question for you, Rupert. And I know, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sour, a sour young man. Sure, um, sure. And I love punching down. Here's a question for you: Is it time for Norwich to be banned from the Premier League? Because I'm absolutely sick to the back teeth of it. They come up every other year and they make the same mistakes, and it's just pointless. They're, they're arrogant from sort of trouncing the, the the championship. They don't make any effort to change the way they play, and they just get battered. And it's just like. Why are you here is the question I ask of Norwich every time they come up. What purpose do you serve? Sheffield United come up, they give it a good go. Leeds come up, they give it a good go. Brentford come up, they give it a good go. Even, you know, your Brentford's, uh, uh, sorry, not Brentford, Bournemouth do it prior seasons to that. West Brom occasionally might step here. Norwich, every single year, steam up from the Championship, stink out the Premier League, 20th, go back down. If I were Richard Masters, I would draft into effect a, a radical new law that would mean Norwich are banned from the Premier League for five years until they sort their shit out. Yeah, I... Uh, I, can I, mean, I Can I, I get your co-signature on that, on that drastic <laughs> new measure? I mean, you think you're salty. How do you think Norwich fans feel? Just like every other year is a complete write-off and it's like, I'm not going to bother even renewing my ticket when, um, when, we're, when we're back up in the Prem. Um, well, it's like, I'm, I'm, I genuinely wonder, like, do you get excited about promotion at, at any, at anymore at this point? Like, I live with a Stoke City fan, and he's always saying, like, when, when I, I mean, they've been there for a while now, so he's a bit miserable, but when they first got relegated a few years ago, I was like, oh, is it miserable down there? And he's like, it's actually quite nice to win the odd game, so I'm not minding it. I get to go to the games every now and again and, and watch us win rather than just getting hammered. Um, and I imagine for Norwich fans, it must kind of be like that going down, because it's just like, oh, some sal for the sore body at last we're not getting destroyed 15-0 by by one of the Premier League you know great teams we're getting to sort of smash Preston and think we're a big team yeah I mean it's I I don't want to sign that with you just because I I do find it quite interesting to see how different sides try and and set up in different ways to survive in the Premier League like I I think they make really interesting case studies at times Um, and I just find it 
in equal parts hilarious and fascinating how Norwich continue to make the same mistakes. Um, but Hashtag ban Norwich, I say. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I mean, it is, uh, for all intents and purposes, a 19-team um, league currently. And, um, Every and time then they Norwich. come up, I'm sick of it. I mean, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, what what is exciting maybe is that it's just kind of free reign for players to just try and prove their metal. I mean, you've got players like Billy Gilmore um, on loan from big clubs, and but, you've but got a couple of young though, players like Tom Cantwell. You get to watch and see how they do. I mean, it's yeah. I'm really, but, but trying to, I'm really reaching for this camp. I'm really Cause, trying because. Because now Norwich have said, like, Falk has come out and been like, we're not a development squad, so we're not going to play Billy Gilmore if he's not... like So Billy Gilmore isn't necessarily getting... Like, to use Chelsea as a great example, you'd be much better off sending them to a team like Southampton, where Loney, Armando, Brogia, and, you know, the player they've sold, Baba Bybek, on Tino Livermento, are starting every week and actually getting the chance to develop because they get to play well. It's just going to... If you're Billy Gilmore, like, what... What development are you going to get from when you play, which isn't apparently all the time, getting hammered at the hands of other Premier League sides? It's just going to smash your confidence. It is, but yeah, you hope that you hope that they're given more chances because you literally just have to change something. Um, but yeah, I, it's not it's not an argument that I'm 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 going to tie my flag to. <laughs> it's not a hill I'm going to die on. But um, yeah, it, they're a weird side. I don't really know what's going on with them. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and it is also fascinating to see a manager perform so well at one level and just be completely unable to compete at another. Um, it, it, is, it is and it isn't, though, because I, I think they're very different jobs. And there's a, I think I've, I've said this quote before, but I, I, I cannot remember who said it, and I cannot remember where I read it, but I read a book once about football management, and it talked about this one club chairman who, they, it was sort of like an Eddie Howe-esque situation, but it wasn't Eddie Howe, and he got this team promoted like two or three divisions, and then got up to either like the second top flight or the top flight, and on getting promoted to that level, the, the chairman just sacked him, and had this really great quote where he said something along the lines of, just because someone's really good at running your corner shop doesn't mean you want them to be in charge of your multinational. And I I, I, I always remember the, well, the general gist of that quote, <laughs> not who gave it or where I read it, but just the general sentiment behind it, because I think it is something that is true. It's it's a different skill set between, especially when you think about the kind of job you have in rel- in relation to the rest of the league. If you're managing Norwich in the championship, your, your goal is to win most games, to win the league. Whereas if you're a manager of Norwich in the Premier League, most weeks your goal should be anyway to mitigate damage get a couple of points where you can if you're playing a sort of lower level side get a win but most of the time don't try and push it and and Norwich managers just seem to come up try and play like they're still in the championship and get punished savagely it is interesting isn't it I mean I I personally would love to see more specialist managers because I mean the only real specialist um role that there is at the moment is you know, managers that that are brought in to try and save clubs from relegation. But I would love to see, you know, managers that their specialty is getting clubs promoted up from the championship. Their specialty is stabilising when, do you know what I mean? Things like that. I'd be really interested to see, you know, more specific roles because you do get that in business. You get, you know, for example, you get managers that are brought in to like preside over the, the opening of a store. And then as soon as the store is up and running, that's them done. 
like their job. Yeah, yeah. To, Thank you very much. Shake your hands. I've fulfilled my role. The the management consultancy of sort of football, yeah, coming in and sort of making it all, yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. And I think I was when I was searching for this quote today because I was, I'll find it one day, and on that day I shall do a little. I know change. what you're talking about, and I will also try and think about which club it was. It wasn't Wolves. Um, but 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 when I was doing this research, I, I stumbled across quite an interesting stat that's specific to the Premier League, and it's that thirty percent of managers who gain promotion to the Premier League are sacked within that same season inside the first six months. And it was basically it was a think piece that was sort of like questioning whether whether it should just be a habit. It should be like not an unusual thing, or not necessarily a habit, but like not seen as an unusual thing to get promoted and immediately sack your manager. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, quite an interesting stat. There is. Some managers have just such strength in some areas like fostering youth or, you know, getting the best out of star players that it really should be. I mean, that plus I would love to see more managerial teams. I'd love to see, you know, two two top managers teaming up to to take on a role together. That'd be, I'd be really here for that as well. I think uh, Salford did that for a while, I believe. Yeah, but I want so... to see it. I want to see it happen at the top level. I want to see, you know... I want to see like a really good defensive coach, you know, join forces with a very expansive attacking manager and I want it to work. And I recognize that that, that is maybe papering over what would be quite severe cracks, but I think it could happen. I suppose that there's a sort of a, <laughs> would that work in any sort of, you know, any leadership structure? It's like most, uh, most ships only have the one captain. Most countries only have the one leader. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you'd maybe need to have at least one as like an assistant manager, but that assistant manager is like a top quality manager. Do you know what I mean? Rather than, because I, I, I recognize that assistant manager is a position in football. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that assistant manager be another great manager. I'd, I'd just, yeah. I'd like that. I'd like to see that. Well, so, so, sort of like the sort of Ralph Rangnick thing that he was doing over at uh, Leipzig, where he's sort of like sporting director and there's another manager there as well. Yeah, similar to that. Yeah, it, it could definitely work, because um, whatever Norwich are doing isn't working. That, that We could talk about Chelsea here. I, I sort of want to sort of wrap us up by talking about Serie A. Chelsea were good. They scored seven goals, but part of that was just that Norwich were really bad. I don't know if you have anything you really want to wax poetic about. There are a couple of players that have continued to do well, like your Chilwells and your Reese Jameses, but nothing... I, I, I don't want to sort of starve Chelsea of the praise they deserve for scoring seven, but at the same time... It's Norwich at the moment. There's the Norwich in this game. It was kind of for the taking. Yeah, I guess. Okay, so I've got I've got one question for you, and then we can move on. Sure. Um, Mason Mount is so key and integral and at the heart of what Chelsea do well. Is that a fault in the system that it's weirdly over reliant on a very specific type of attacking midfielder, or is he just that good? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's, he's a very good player. And I think also this is kind of what happens like Mason, Mason Mount. He's like a little, like, funny enough, he's a little bit like a little golden retriever. He's always bounding about. He looks so happy to play. You get the idea that sort of the manager is going like in training, just like, right guys, today we're doing drills. And he's like literally panting with his, his hands up by his, by his chest going, yes, boss, yes, boss, ready to do it, boss, sprinting out to do all the cones. Um, and I think part of that is what happens when you get a player come through the academy. We've seen a lot of players like that this season. I think Emma Smith Rowe 
was a player for Arsenal and he came out this week and was sort of like I'll do anything I'll, I'll you know I want to play for this club for the rest of my career and when you get young players come through like that you can just tell that Mason Mount is extremely enthusiastic about doing whatever he can for the club and we've seen him play in roles as sort of like a number eight we've seen him play as a, a flat midfielder not so sort of roaming we've seen him play as a winger in this system Tuchel has described him as sort of one of three strikers um so he, he's very happy to do anything and I think in addition to that he is quite good at being adaptable not just willing to do it but he, he is turning out to be quite good at doing it Fair enough so you don't think it's really a fault in the system you think that it is just that he is so energetic and enthusiastic and effective that he, he lifts Chelsea whenever he plays for them Yeah I, th- I think so and I think if, if Chelsea if Mason Mount got injured I don't think it'd be that devastating to Chelsea, even though I do agree he's extremely important to their system. I think it's just that with Mason Mount, you're afforded so much flexibility because you can all of a sudden have, you know, Chelsea were missing both Werner and Lukaku, and they didn't look like they were missing either of them because Mason Mount can fill in any position that you need, or they could be missing Jorginho, or they could be missing, like, he can fill in so many different positions pretty ably and just allow you the flexibility to move within that squad. It's like, it's like having, you know, it's like managers always like players that can play auxiliary roles because it's like having two players in one, and Mason Mount can do that two or three or four times. Well, um, when the uh, the new Man City Amazon documentary comes out, maybe we'll get a, uh, a Marina Grunovskaya behind-the-scenes documentary and, and we'll get to see some footage of uh, Thomas Tuchel playing catch with Mason Mount at Cobham. <laughs> I'd like to think it's not even at Cobham, it's at like a park behind Tuchel's house. <laughs> it's like um, the training finishes and he's like come on Mason get in the boot of my car we're going to the park um, let's, uh, let's move on and talk about Italy for a brief moment before we close out the episode and we've got to talk about Italy I've wanted to talk about it for a few weeks uh, because there's a lot of exciting things going on it definitely uh, is. I want to start off first and foremost, um, just by talking about, you know, bridging us into Syria with a little bit of familiarity. And that's obviously that Jose Mourinho is uh, uh, going into uh, Syria with Roma. And I, I want to talk about a different team first, but I just want to talk about something that Mourinho did this weekend and over the last week, which was just so funny and maybe the most Mourinho thing he's ever done. Um, and that was um, Roma had a Europa Conference League games, obviously that new competition, where they played against a Norwegian team called Bodo Glimt, who I believe are the um, the only team in Europe with a forward slash in their name um, and he played a second string and lost 6-1 which is maybe the biggest defeat and the worst defeat that he's had in his managerial career and came out afterwards yeah. and in true Mourinho fashion lost without an ounce of humility was scathing was was or without an ounce of shame he was just sort of scathing criticizing all his players calling them all terrible he was like you're worse you're not even good enough to play in the Norwegian league all these players are blah 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 and then went into the game against Napoli on the weekend, got a draw, and they're the first team to not lose to Napoli this season, um, and hilariously started with his first string. None of the second string players who he called out were on the bench. He had taken all of them out of the squad and replaced <laughs> them with like a bunch of like 19 and 18-year-olds. And I was just like, that is so Mourinho. He's been like, you're all shit, and I'm not even going to let you sit on the bench in this Serie A game. <laughs> It's prime. It's prime sass. I mean, Jose Mourinho, the Sith, deals in absolutes. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I kind of, I kind of rated what he said. I mean, he was kind of like, because the the main thing that came out from um, from that game midweek was that you know the coverage of, around what he said was that you know his side wasn't as good as them. But what he actually said was, you know, um, you know they just weren't 
the second string side were not as good as them. And that kind of was correct. I mean, they got absolutely battered. And I, I'm quite here for it in, in a refreshing, you know, I'm literally just doing whatever the hell I want because I'm the manager and I don't care anymore because I've won it all. Energy. I'm here for that. Yeah, he, he was just sort of lambasting on it. He wasn't like, oh, we could have improved it. He just like dunked the entire squad under and was just like, you're all trash. <laughs> and then and then didn't play. Like, this is the funny thing as well. It's like, is he going to bring those players back to the bench for the next game? Or have all of those players, like three months into Mourinho's tenure, just been sacked off permanently? But I mean, where where's the lie? I mean, Bodo Glimt were better than them. I mean, I mean, yeah, they were, but part of that is a down to the manager. It's not just the players to blame. The manager also takes a part. But Mourinho has, like, steered into the skid so hard that it's only the players' fault that he's not even giving them a chance to, like, be on the bench or redeem themselves, which is so Mourinho. <laughs> ah, come on. See, I just think and, that Mourinho is And, and now... he also got sent off this weekend against Napoli. Yeah, uh, both managers did, I believe. So, uh, good old Mourinho. I mean, I just think that Mourinho is now, like, one step enough removed that he he's he's gone back to being like like a cheeky little whimsical what a silly guy rather than like just being furiously frustrated at him every week in the Premier League. He's gone from Marvel villain to Disney villain. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great analogy. No, he's gone from he's gone from Marvel villain to kids show villain. Like not even <laughs> not even like a Disney epic, but like aged eight to twelve. L- less Thanos, more Swipe of the Fox. Exactly. He's like, um, he's who's the uh, Doctor Von Doom from Perry the Platypus? He's oh, like, um, uh, Professor Doofenshmirtz. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is kind of him, yeah. Uh, but looking at some of the other teams, Napoli, of course, in that draw, also had their manager Luciano Spalletti sent off. But first place in the league after nine games, eight wins and a draw. This draw being the most recent one, so eight wins up to that point. Um, and some really exciting players. Victor Osimhen is shaping up to be a real superstar. He is a Nigerian striker, very young, worth uh, keeping an eye on him because not a lot of people talking about him, but definitely one that's very exciting. Only five goals so far, but been very, very important in in all of their games. Um, and their whole team's looked really interesting as well. Um, and Napoli are quite a good one because Napoli are kind of like what Liverpool were like pre-Klopp. They're a really, really good team. That I mean, they weren't as successful as Liverpool you know, in their entire history, but they, they're one of those teams that's always sort of in the mix. A really proud team. I think they're the third or, sorry, they're the fourth biggest um, club in Italy in terms of number of fans after Juventus and, and Milan and, and Inter. Um, so they're a really, really huge side, but they haven't won the league since 1990 um, and they've only ever won Serie A twice, 1990 and 1987, which were both years where they had Maradona. Um, so it'll be really, really interesting if they can add to their history by winning it a third time, which is huge if you've only ever won it twice before, and winning it without one of the best players to have ever ever graced the earth. Although who knows? Maybe we'll be. I mean, about yeah, it would be Rosenham. pretty. It would be pretty spectacular. I mean, what I would say is, you know, Aussie men, not very well known in England, um, but you know, he did join Napoli for seventy million euros. This wasn't like an under the radar signing. Um, yeah. I was I was skewing that more to our majority English audience uh, rather than he's a he's a complete unknown worldwide. That's fair. I mean, I think um, it, I mean he was he was their only real big signing that season. I mean, I think the uh, the next most they paid for anyone was the two million euro loan fee given to Chelsea for Tiamoe Bakayoko for the season. So um, then they by no means bought the title, and yeah, they are. You know, we, we've talked about them a little bit already. They've got a really exciting system. It's all clicking for them. And 
we'll just see if they've got the legs. I mean, they're gonna looks like they're gonna get run quite close by AC Milan, which we can talk about now because um, they're also joint twenty five points, seven points above third place. Um, AC Milan have won their last five games, which is really impressive, um, and you know they they also look to be building something. It's funny, again, a a comparison to be drawn here. Uh, Milan are another team that were kind of at the same time as Manchester United having their sort of fall from grace. They won the league in 2011 and then the following year had, in much the same way we look at that that um, Evra-Vidic-Ferdinand exodus as like one of the most shocking things to ever be done in a football club. I remember what Milan at the time not only sold Thiago Silva and Zlatan Ibrahimovic in the same year to a a then burgeoning PSG side, but also lost like Gennaro Gattuso, uh, Alessandro Nesta, Clarence Seidoff and Van Bommel, all in the same window, and had lost Andrea Pirlo the year before. So it was like 90% of the big names that were at that team exited over the course of a window and a half. And it was just insane. Um, and, you know, interestingly, Thiago Silva and Ibrahimovic left to PSG, who at that point were still the PSG of yesteryear, not the modern PSG we know now. Um, they hadn't won the French League since 93-94. And then that those two signings sort of kicked off their rise to being the PSG that we know now. Um, so Milan, really interesting if they can get back to it. Again, a lot like Napoli. They're a side that have often been sort of looking at coming back and sort of looking good over the course of the year last season for a little period of time in the sort of early to mid area they were looking like the favorites to win the league and then sort of let it drop off and into took place um so it'll be interesting to see with both of these teams both enjoy a little bit of a false dawn and have before could this season be different they're doing better than they usually do um, and I hope for the sake of variance that they do uh, do give the other teams a good run because both of these teams are very proud, interesting teams um, and it would be nice to see them back in Europe's elite. Yeah, no, no, it definitely would. And I think um, what makes Syria so exciting this year is just that the top five teams, I'd be excited if any of them won it. Barring Juventus, who are currently sixth, um, you know, Napoli, very exciting new team. AC Milan, again, as we talked about, they've got something going on there. Inter Milan, great narrative. They, they, you know, down on finances. They've lost their manager. They lost their star striker. Could they still bounce back and win it? That would be incredible. Mourinho's Roma would be amazing if they won it. They're in fourth at the moment. And then Atalanta, um, as a team who have just kind of come out of nowhere in the last four or five years and play such a fun, different style of football um, with a couple of really interesting players. I'd love to see them do well as well. So I really hope Juventus don't win it this year. And it's looking like they might not. And if they don't, almost all of the candidates are really fun. And I would I would love to see win a title. A very, very exciting league at the moment. Yeah, and that, that's sort of why I wanted to have a little bit of an amuse-bouche for, for the listeners and for ourselves so that we can revisit this over the course of the season and sort of feast once we've had our appetites properly wet. Um, but for now, I think that's probably a good place to leave it off, Rupert. I think it is. I think we're running pretty, pretty low on time. Um, Cam, thank you very much for talking to me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.